we came back last Wednesday after being gone for 10 days, we were on Interstate 70 headed east. Anybody know where that is? That is the longest drive, especially when you've been gone for a long time. And as we're driving, I wish my name were Dorothy and I could click my heels and just wish myself home. Because, you know, you've been gone that long, there's no place like home. Your pillow, your bed, your surroundings, your church people. I mean, it's just, it's, you love to finally get home. You love to go and to do those kind of things, but there's nothing like coming home. Today, in John 21, we see the disciples finally coming home. They're in Galilee, a place that they have grown up all of their lives. And they are congregated as a small a very confused yet very encouraged group in a very familiar place. They had been with Jesus many, many times. It was the headquarters that Jesus had while he ministered in Galilee. And many times, coming and going, they would stay there in this place in Galilee by the sea. And they would stay there and congregate together and rest and relax and just get refreshed and then go out again. And there were incredible, wonderful fellowship times with Jesus in this headquarters there near the Sea of Galilee. And they are finally there in John 21, verse 1. They're finally there. And they are glad that they are finally there. Because you see, in John 21, verse 1, we see an important introduction to this incredible chapter tucked away at the end of the Gospel of John. Pastor Mike, thank you for preaching last week. You did a phenomenal job. I I, I thank you for that, and that uh, kind of put me to shame. I'm kind of on a, you know, you're just getting too good of a preacher, so uh, just watch it, okay? Just watch it. No, I'm just kidding, but uh, what a great guy. And, and he finished the chapter 20 with us for us last week, and it seems to be that the chapter ends and the gospel account ends, but then you flip the page and there's John 21. You go, what's up with that? I thought it ended with the last couple of verses in John 20. All of a sudden, now there's John 21. And there's a whole bunch of debate and dialogue about John 21. And I don't really care about that. I think it is the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit that led John to write John 21. And he opens up with these words, after this. Two words. Very strategic and very important. After this. He's referencing after he seems to sum up his gospel account at the last couple of chapters of verse 20. He begins now again under inspiration of the Holy Spirit to bring us back to what has happened pre- before this or preceding this. And it's a beautiful account where John describes where Jesus has been crucified. He has been buried in a borrowed tomb. The stone has been rolled over the entrance, but the stone has been rolled away. Christ has been resurrected from the dead. Mary goes to administer to the body of Jesus, cannot find him when he gets there, has an encounter with him in the garden. And he, in that conversation, says, Mary, go back to my disciples who are in the hideout up there and tell them that I have, in fact, risen from the dead, I am alive, and tell them to remember what I told them to meet me in Galilee. And Mary runs in John 20 to tell the disciples, but they do not believe her report. And John 20 then takes us to the time in which the disciples are in the upper room, the doors are locked, and the Bible says they are locked because they're afraid of the Jews, as if the door's locked to keep the Jews away. And all of a sudden, while the doors are locked, Jesus appears out of thin air in their midst, and he is undetected for a period of time until finally he addresses the disciples who are there, and he says, peace be with you. 
In other words, don't be freaked out, guys. It's me. It's Jesus here. I'm not a ghost. I'm real. We learn in other accounts that he, he eats and he demonstrates to them that he's not a ghost. But it's interesting that he commissions them in this appearance, this first appearance, by breathing on them the Holy Spirit and then telling them to go and forgive sin, which is a beautiful illustration of the gospel of Jesus. That's what the gospel does. It helps us understand how we are forgiven from sin. And anytime the gospel is shared and someone comes to faith, they are forgiven of their sin. And uh, he just vanishes as he appeared. Thomas, who was not present at that appearance, finally arrives on the scene, and they tell Thomas what happened, and he's not going to believe it. He has nothing to do with the story. We call him Downing Thomas, but as we saw last week, that's not really fair. He's not really any more doubting than the other disciples, but, you know, he hasn't had a special appearance as Peter had. He hasn't been with the two on the road to Damascus where Jesus appeared to them, and he hasn't had one of those. He wasn't in the upper room when Jesus appeared. He didn't see Jesus in the garden with Mary, so he, he's sort of at a loss. I mean, he's one of the 11 left who's not had an opportunity to, to be in the presence of Jesus, and he's not going to buy it. And he tells them, as God, I think, hears, I will not believe unless I feel. And, so, and we see that Thomas is asking for a greater dispensation or a greater understanding or a greater experience than the other disciples. You saw him, I want to feel him. And maybe we might say that Thomas is more of a feeler than a faith guy. He wants to feel it. He wants to touch it. He wants a different dispensation, a different, a higher experience. And I don't want to just see him. I want to touch him. Seven days later, while in the upper room, Jesus appears a second time. Thomas, who once heard of the report of Jesus, I'm convinced, didn't leave for seven days that room. Hoping that Jesus would return as he did the first time so he could see for himself and touch for himself. And Jesus appears and unagain he just appears out of nowhere and he stands in their midst undetected until finally he speaks to Thomas. He said, Thomas, you asked to touch, now touch. And the scriptures don't tell us whether or not he touched, but I don't believe that he did because if he did, had he touched Jesus, we would have had a record of that. He just sees and he falls into belief and he says, my Lord and my God. That's his declaration. Now Thomas believes. And the narrative ends. And it appears in John 20 that John concludes his gospel until John 21. After this, after all of this, there's something else that the Holy Spirit wants us to know. The disciples, after all of that, after the second appearance, decide finally, maybe we ought to go to Galilee where Jesus has told us to go. Now, Jesus has given them the order to go, and they decide to go, and he's given them the confidence to go because in the second peace be with you, he says, I want you to go, and I want you to go in confidence and peace that I'm going to protect you and provide for you, and you're going to get there safely. So go in peace. Don't be afraid. And so they decide to go, but many scholars are convinced they divide up in small groups to go because it would be kind of obvious if, if the 11 disciples plus, you know, hey, maybe a dozen or so more just kind of all left at the same time and marched through the very narrow streets of Jerusalem. So they leave in small groups to go to Galilee, that familiar place they called headquarters by the Sea of Galilee. 
And now in the narrative in John 21, we see that there are seven disciples who have congregated together in that familiar place. And it is here they are waiting on the Lord. He's told them he would come. Now they are waiting on him. Have you ever had to wait on the Lord? Sure you have. There's been a circumstance or a situation or problem or a dilemma or relational conflict or some kind of financial burden or some sort of physical ailment or there's been something, some circumstance, some situation in your life and you have been promised that he is with you and that he will come to you and you have found yourself in the waiting room of faith. Nobody likes to be in a waiting room waiting for a doctor. Why do they make one o'clock appointments when you don't see the doctor till two? Why not make it 1.50 and you can only sit there 10 minutes? And the disciples are there waiting for Jesus to come. And seconds become hours and hours become days. And it's not really days. It just seems like it. It takes forever. And they're anticipating and longing to see Jesus. And he's delaying because they know when Jesus finally shows up on the scene, everything will change. Because when Jesus shows up, it's been their experience that everything changes. Because he is the Son of God, and he has been raised from the dead, and he is Jesus. And they're waiting for Jesus. They're waiting for their Lord. Let's take a look at how they waited, and let's learn some insights into our own lives as to how we might learn from them how to wait and how not to wait. Number one. While I wait on the Lord, I need to consider his ways higher than my ways. I need to consider that his ways are higher than my ways. The Bible says in John 21, verse 1, After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Notice after this, we have done that already in introduction. Jesus then is revealing himself. It is Jesus who reveals himself. We cannot force him nor make him to reveal himself. It is he who decides to reveal himself to his people in his way, in his moment, in his time. And Jesus is revealing himself to them again. This is the third time, as we see in verse 8, this is the third time in which Jesus then reveals himself to his disciples. Who is he revealing himself to? To his people. He does not reveal himself to those who are not his people. He now is only interested in revealing himself to his disciples. Those are the people that he's concerned about because he has chosen them, he has called them, he has commissioned them, and he has equipped them with the Spirit, and he wants them now to succeed or to fulfill or to accomplish the mission that God sent him to do. And they are the vessels, the channels, the instruments by which God is going to do that. And he is taking now this time, this opportunity, this moment to invest in his people and his disciples who have left everything to follow him him so that as he does, they might be encouraged and provided for and and strengthened to do what they're supposed to do when he is gone. Because he knows he's going to leave a second time, and he will not return this time until he returns again with the trumpet and the cloud. But until then, he's investing in his people and his disciples. Where is the place he is to meet them? Notice where? By the Sea of Tiberias. Now, this is the Sea of Galilee. I don't have time to explain why it's Tiberias here, but it's by the sea. Not at the sea, 
not on the sea, but by the sea. In other words, I believe he's indicating that he's to meet them in their, their headquarters, in the place that he's assigned to meet them, a place that is familiar to them, a place they have called home now for three and a half years, and that is the place they are to meet him. And so he has said, this is a place, I want you to go to the place that you're familiar with, and is there that I will meet you by the sea of Tiberias. But notice, and he revealed himself in this way. I think it's interesting that John, through inspiration of the Holy Spirit, kind of sort of repeats what he has said. He said earlier... After this, Jesus revealed himself, and now he's saying, and he reveals himself. But notice the addendum here, in this way, by his means. It is Jesus who has a purpose in this context, in this narrative, in this way, to reveal himself to his disciples. I believe that there are times when his disciples wished that he had revealed himself in a different way. It would have saved them a whole night of, of, of effortless fishing to end up with nothing. It would have saved them a lot of sweat equity and a lot of embarrassment, and it would have kept their pride intact. And yet Jesus chose this way, recorded here, to reveal himself. And Isaiah reminds us in Isaiah 55 that his thoughts are not our thoughts and that his ways are not our ways. Why? Because his ways are higher than our ways, and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Our thoughts are way down here, and our ways are way down here. And remember, the disciples had the Holy Spirit, and yet their ways and their thoughts, but his are way up here. In other words, God sees the past, the present, and the future all at the same time. And his ways are higher, and his thoughts are higher than ours. I don't care how spiritual you think you are, you are not at the level of God. And in our fallenness and our humanity, often our ways are not his ways, and our thoughts are not his thoughts. And his disciples, I believe, at this particular time, in spite of having the presence and the power and the person of the Holy Spirit, in their life, is still, they're still not up there with God. And we need to, in our circumstance, in our situation, while we wait on God, always be reminded, I must consider his ways higher than mine. Would I do it the way God did it? No. I would do it more in my favor, wouldn't you? I mean, how many of us in our prayer life had disguised a prayer request as, God, this is the way I want you to do it? And then we get disgusted with God when he didn't do it the way we want him to do it. Why? Because our ways are not his ways. His ways are higher than our ways. And in spite of all of this that takes place in the life of the disciples, this is the method, this is the way that Jesus chose to reveal himself to his disciples. In their all-night turmoil and toil and labor and endless, effortless, powerless attempt to catch fish, in all of their expertise, he waited until they finally came up with zip to reveal himself. He let them go through all of that to finally get them to where they needed to be so that they would turn to him as their savior. You know, it isn't until we finally get to our last effort that we turn to Jesus. And we need to consider his ways higher than ours. Number two, after we consider his ways higher than ours, we need to commit to availability. The disciples have been available to him since they have been chosen, called, and commissioned, and we see that in verse 2. Simon Peter Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Canaan, Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. 
don't overlook that. They were together. And they were together exactly where God had told them to be. Meet me by the sea in Galilee. And they went to that familiar place. Who, who do we find there? We find there Peter, who is Simon Peter, who is the, 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 the doer. We see Thomas, who saw Jesus at his second appearance, called the twin. We see Nathaniel, who also is called by Jesus. We see the two sons of Zebedee, James and John. And he mentions two other disciples. And as we go through the, the text in 21, over the next couple of Sundays, we're going to find that this is Philip and Andrew. So we have seven of the disciples out of the 11 left who are there up in headquarters waiting on the Lord. Seven. Now, who we don't have is Matthew, Bartholomew, Simon 2, and James 2. So there are four who, for whatever reason, we're not told why, but they're not present. I don't think it's because of disobedience. Maybe they just hadn't gotten there yet. Maybe they were the last four to leave. Maybe they took a different route. We don't really know why. When they're not scolded, but they're just not there. So there are seven of the 11 left. And somebody said, well, I thought there were 12, but Judas now is dead, and the twelfth disciple is not really no longer a disciple. And so there are 11, and seven of the 11 are there. But they were there together, waiting where God had told them to wait. If you have been told by God to wait for him, you best be where he told you to wait. You better be where he told you to wait. Because you see, Jesus said, I will meet you in Galilee. What if they had stayed in Jerusalem? Jesus didn't say, I'll meet you in Jerusalem. I didn't, he didn't say, I will meet you in Judea. He said, I will meet you in Galilee. And I think we have to understand that while we wait on the Lord, we must make sure that we are becoming what he has called us to become and doing what he has called us to do, and we are present where he has told us to wait because it is there that we are going to encounter Jesus, not somewhere else doing something else, but where he has told us to be. Commit to availability. Lord, I am available to go where you want me to go, to do what you want me to do, to become what you want me to become while I wait on you. Number three, we need to combat impulsiveness. After we have considered his ways higher than ours and committed to availability, we need to combat this thing called impulsivity or impulsiveness. You're an impulsive person, aren't you? Not me. Yes, you are. We all are impulsive. We all react more than we act to our environment and our circumstances. And impulsiveness while we wait, you know, we get impatient. And because impatient grows, we get impulsive. Because we want to do something. And we see that waiting on Jesus isn't doing something. We got to do something else to help him along. And so here we see in verse 3, Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. That's not an order. That's a recommendation. He said, hey, boys, I'm tired of waiting on Jesus. I'm just sitting here doing nothing. It's best while we wait on the Lord to do at least something. Let's go fishing. That's what we know best to do. We're good at it. We made a living at it. it and, and maybe they're hungry. Maybe they're not. 
But if you remember, Jesus called them away from fishing for fish, and he called them to fish for men. And they haven't been fishing since they've been with Jesus. And now that he is absent, they're going fishing. They get tired of waiting on him. And Simon Peter, being the impulsive guy that he is, I'm going fishing. I'm tired of waiting. The recommendation of what he's going to do. Notice the response. They said to him, hey, we'll go with you. Simon Peter takes the lead. He says, I'm going fishing, guys. I don't know what you're going to do. It's better for us to go out there and try to catch some fish and sit here and do nothing. And they say, hey, we're going with you. The idea is all of the other six who were there waiting with Simon Peter said, we're going with you as well. We're, we're tired of waiting. We're going to go fishing with you. That seems like a pretty good suggestion. We're just sitting here doing nothing, wasting time, waiting on the Lord, and he's not coming anytime soon. So why don't we go about doing something productive, something effective, something we love to do? Let's go fishing. And they went out on the boat, noticed the response, but that night they caught what? Nothing. Nada, zero, nothing of significance. Maybe a, an old boot. Maybe some old can. I know they didn't have that back then, but I don't know what they had back then, probably in the lake. They throw their net out and they bring it up and just nothing but old just stuff people threw in the sea. No fish at all, nothing of significant Value, meaning nothing at all. In all of this effort, in all of their expertise, they caught nothing. We must, involve, must, must, must shun impulsive reactions while we wait on God to act. Because a lot of times, that's what gets us in our biggest trouble, is this impulsiveness to just do something. Because waiting on Jesus isn't doing something. May I ask you to consider that waiting on him is something. And if that's what he's called you to do, you wait on Jesus until he gives you instruction and direction or action and tells you your next step. You wait on him. Don't grab the bull by the horns. Don't take the steering wheel. Don't put your feet on the gas pedal and just make something happen. You combat that impulsive behavior and you wait on him. He revealed to you what is to happen next. Number four, we need to confess our inadequacy. I need to confess while I wait on God, I am completely inadequate. That's hard for some of us to admit Turn to your neighbor and say, you're inadequate. Go ahead, tell them. Say it with confidence. You're inadequate. Look them back in the face and say, you're right, I am inadequate. I don't have what it takes. Notice the text. Just as the day was breaking, sun is coming up. I don't know if you've ever been to the Sea of Galilee, I have. And from the east where the sun rises, I believe there's some mountains and there's a range that makes it higher. And so as the sun is coming up, and it takes a while to come up, I was in the mountains of Montana and Wyoming and and, uh, 
uh, whatever the state those were anyway. There have been so many states. I don't know which states they were. But the sun comes up, you know, and, and, and it's up a while before it kind of reaches the top of the mountains. And as it comes up, it's coming down over the Sea of Galilee. And as it does, I can imagine the sun shining on those beautiful waters there. And, and it's sort of a, it's bright, you know. It can be blinding. They didn't have sunglasses back then. Imagine that. How horrible it would be to live back then without sunglasses. And so there's that, there's that crystal beautiful water and some waves and the sun hitting on it and it's brilliant and it's bright and Jesus stood on the shore sound familiar the other two times he appears he's just standing there unrecognized by the disciples I wonder how long he stood there while his disciples kept throwing the the net out and bringing it up empty he has a purpose in that. Exhaust yourself, boys. You're not catching anything until I show up. And he watches them. Exert an incredible amount of effort, sweating their armpits, you know, which run, and they're just, they're, they're, they're taking off their clothes and they're sitting there just in their underwear because it's hot. And they're fishing and they're catching nothing. They're exasperated. They're angry. Their pride has been shaken and nothing is happening. And Jesus is standing there watching them do that. Now, they're about 100 yards away. That's about the distance between one end zone to another end zone. So it's a pretty good distance. Almost the distance in this auditorium here. I don't think it's quite, I don't know, maybe that's a, what, the 45-yard line. But anyway, it's a long way. And he's standing on the shore, and notice yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. They didn't know. I don't think they were really looking for him to show up while they were out fishing. Maybe in their exasperation, their minds were no longer thinking Jesus is on his way. We don't really know or have any idea why they don't. We, some scholars suggest that Jesus didn't reveal himself to them, but he had already revealed himself twice. Why wouldn't they recognize him now? Maybe you can say 100 yards is a long way away with the sun beating down. They couldn't quite see him. They didn't have sunglasses or binoculars, so they just could see a figure there. We're going to hear in a minute where he speaks to them, so they're going to be able to hear him. And I can imagine 100 yards away, it was more like a shout than it was just a kind of small conversation. So he's standing there. And he's watching. Jesus always, always watches his disciple. And he's always standing by. You may not see him, feel him, or know that he's there, but you are never, ever alone. He's there the whole time. Watching and waiting for you. To come to him. And we see in the text in verse 5, Jesus then finally speaks. Children, do you have any fish? Now the word children is kind of like, hey boys, you caught anything today? Something like that. Okay? And they answer, no! Don't take that very lightly now. That's a huge thing for a fisherman to ever say, I caught nothing all night. Anybody know a fisherman like that? That comes back without some kind of tail? It's always about the one that got away even if they caught nothing? 
Yeah. Well, I didn't catch anything, but there were several that got away. They were on the hook, and they were really big, but they got away. It's hard for a fisherman who is an expert and who loves it to admit they fished all night long and caught zip, zero, not a nothing. And why would Jesus ask them that? Did he not know they caught nothing? I think he knew they caught nothing. He knows everything. Remember, he's higher and he can see the past, the present, and the future. Jesus now in his divine human state sees and knows as he did before everything and he knows they've caught nothing he's wanting them to confess we in our own effort have failed because only when we are willing to admit we have failed in our own effort do we turn to him for a savior because until someone finally recognizes i can't save myself do we then turn to someone who can save us that's part of the problem with pride and part of the reason why many people reject jesus A failure to admit that I can't do it myself and I need someone outside of myself. That Christianity is codependency stuff. I don't need that. Yes, you do. And Jesus wanted them to finally be broken spiritually and admit, I cannot on my own make this happen. I need you, Jesus. I have failed I've grabbed the bull by the horns, I've taken the steering wheel, I've accelerated on the accelerator, and I have pushed my life in this direction, and I have failed, and I need you, Jesus, to make it all right. And only you can do that. But oh, Satan likes to whisper those pride thoughts into our hearts, doesn't he? And our flesh is so quick to buy into it. Number five, I need to choose Christ's dependency. Once I confess my inadequacy, I then turn to him in dependency. He says to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. I got a problem to your solution, boys. You're fishing on the wrong side of the boat. Seven disciples look at me and say, really? Who does this guy think he is? They're fishing off the wrong side. We've thrown that. I mean, we've done on. Don't you think all night long? Do you think all night long they're only fishing off one side of the boat? I, 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 man, I've I've known some fishermen in my day. The fish aren't biting. They try everything to catch a fish. Everything they know of. Every trick out of the the box and every tactical maneuver and every different direction and over here where they've bitten before and over here where he caught a big and they, they're moving around doing everything they can and the disciples, man, they have done everything they can to catch these fish and now this guy who is unrecognized by them said, throw it on the other side, boys! Did he see something we didn't see? And we hadn't fished here in a long time. Maybe he knows something we don't know. Notice there's a promise. You'll find some. If you do what I tell you, you'll find some. There's never blessing in disobedience. Let me tell you again. There's never blessing in disobedience. You can't live a disobedient life and say, God, bless me, bless me, bless me, bless me, bless me. But I want to live my life. I want to do what I want to do, say what I want to say. 
become when I, I, but you bless me, and I'm going to blame you if you don't, but you let me live. That doesn't happen. God doesn't operate that way. And so what do they do? They cast it. They take the net and they throw it up in the air and they cast it. They cast it. And notice the word now. Circle that, underline it. Now everything changes. Everything changes from now on because Jesus is there. He has told them where to find the fish. They are obedient in what he's told them to do and they are exercising faith. And now, notice what happens. They were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of the fish. Seven men could not haul in the amount of the fish. It was too heavy and there were too many. They couldn't bring it on the boat to secure the net and the, the catch. Why did they have that catch after all night long? Because they heard and they did what he told them to do. They depended upon Jesus and upon hearing what he told them to do, that dependency resulted in blessing in their lives. When we choose to be dependent on him, there is Blessing beyond measure in your life. That will be heavier than you can carry and more than you can count. Number six, we need to confirm his sovereignty. We have two more. This is one of two. We need to confirm his sovereignty. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said, Who is that? Is John the Baptist? No. John, the beloved disciple. Yes, that John. I'm not sure why he's the beloved disciple. I think it's because he's the most, uh, most reasonable. He's, uh, he, he's the most logical. He follows Jesus in a different way than the others. He's uh, one of the inner circle of the three. He's been with Jesus with many, many different, very intimate, personal times. He's one of the three that are sort of the inner circle Jesus had away. We've been talking about discipleship, how Jesus deals with one, three, twelve and he, he, he disciples in larger numbers, and this is one of the, he is one of the three that he brings into his circle and to closer, and there's a closeness with John that is described in this text. He is the one who loved Jesus or who Jesus loved. And he says to who? Who does he say it to? Come on, who does he say it to? Peter. Who was the guy that suggested we go fishing. Peter. Why does he always get the breaks? You ever wondered that? Why didn't so-and-so always get the breaks? I never seem to get the breaks. He seems to have a special dispensation. John the Beloved, and he turns to Peter, and John the Beloved tells Peter, not the others, but I think the others heard, it's the Lord. Peter's the first to hear the news. It is who? The Lord. He is sovereign. He is Lord. He is 
king of kings and lord of lords, reigning and ruling on his throne, dictating and determining every activity and every circumstance and every situation in your life. Remember, he is revealing himself in this way. This is Jesus fulfilling the ultimate purpose as lord over their lives and over this circumstance and over this Victory. He is the Lord, and he should get credit for the harvest, for the catch. He is Lord. He is sovereign, and we must recognize his sovereignty when he displays his generosity and give him the glory for what he has done and he alone. Don't take credit for what God does or doesn't do because he is himself revealing himself in this way. And we must give him glory when he is generous toward us. And then lastly, we need to capitalize on his proximity. They've been waiting on him. And John turns to Peter and said, it's the Lord. They're about 100 yards out, so that's a pretty good distance. I've been to the Sea of Galilee. It's not that big of a sea. I think it's really a lake. And we've got lakes in Wichita, well, in Kansas, bigger than the Sea of Galilee, in my opinion. I saw lakes on the journey I was on this last week and a half that were larger than this lake. I've seen the Sea of Galilee. It doesn't really seem that big, and I don't know why they call it a sea, but it's the Sea of Galilee, and they're about 100 yards out. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. More than likely, he was fishing in his sort of his underwear because he's been struggling all night in the heat, I think, of the evening. And now we are about to have 101 degrees in Wichita. And it's going to be 90 plus in the evening. It's hot. I don't care what your definition is. That's hot. And sometimes even walking late at night when the sun's out, you still sweat. And he did not want to see Jesus the way he was. He grabs his outer garment and he wraps it around himself so he can have freedom in his legs because you know they went down like the robe that I wear at graduation Sunday and he wraps it around so he can have freedom to move and he must have swam somewhat and then walked after that over a hundred yards as quickly as he possibly could forgetting all about the catch that he sought the night before. That's incredible when you think about it. He was a fisherman who loved to catch fish. Jesus first, fish second. And Jesus wasn't there and he sought fish. And that's the biggest catch more than likely he'd ever made in his lifetime. But when he heard that it was Jesus, he left it all again like he did the first time, jumped in the water and boom, headed straight for Jesus. Why? Because he values Jesus more than he values things. There's a lesson there. And sometimes we love things more than we love God and more than we love Jesus. For he was stripped for his work and he threw himself into the sea and he went to Jesus. And then notice verse 8. The other disciples came in the boat. Don't get... Don't get critical about the other disciples. And the heck with that, I'm going with Peter. Remember, John is the sensible one. He's the reasonable one. He knows in his heart, and so do the other disciples in his mind, that, that hey, Jesus gave us this catch for a reason. 
And so we're going to keep what he gave us and bring it to the shore and present it to him. Or maybe it's, you know, we don't really know why he gave us this sketch, but we're going to do what we can to, to protect and preserve and to guard that. And there's a whole other lesson there that we don't have time about. And one of these days I'd like to do a, a, a message on just the fish here and our responsibility as a church toward the fish as fishers of men, not fishers of fish. But Nonetheless, don't get too critical on them. They came in the boat as quick as they could, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from land, but about 100 yards off. So as we close, here's the final thought. Am I waiting on the Lord? I promise that all of us in this room are waiting on him to one degree or another. If you're not right now, you will soon be waiting on him. I promise. And these are invaluable lessons for us. As we wait on him, be reminded in this story that he's on the shore waiting for his disciples. And in this invitation time, as he waits, will we run to him? Let's pray. God, thank you for the joy and the privilege and the opportunity we have to be challenged by this passage. And I pray that you would use this, these verses, these insights, as many as they were, and your spirit would take your truth and apply it into our lives. Bring down the strongholds. Overcome the barriers and the obstacles. Speak truth into our lives and help us see how we, as we wait on you, must wait. Some of us have not waited rightly. We have, we have taken the steering wheel and we have put our gas, our, our foot on the pedal and have revved it up and we're headed in directions we shouldn't head because we're just, we've got to do something because waiting on you just doesn't seem like the right thing to do. We've spoken poorly. We've acted wrongly. We have thought ineffectively. And we're... We're not where you've told us to be. And today, you stand on the shore, quietly waiting to reveal yourself to us so that as we repent, we might return to you. There's a disciple in this room, and I believe needs to make that decision today. Many of us need to make that decision today. Would you come into our hearts and speak into our lives? Help us to see as you reveal yourself to us and what you want us to do. Lord, there are people in this room today who have yet to place their faith and trust in you. As you reveal yourself to them as their Savior, help them to recognize that they are insufficient in meeting their needs for salvation, that only through faith in you can they be saved. With your head bowed and your eyes closed, let me ask you for a moment to reflect upon Jesus' revelation of himself to you today. What you see is because he wants you to see. What you heard is because he wants you to hear it. What you know is because he has opened your understanding and he has given you insight to what he wants you to do today. And while he waits for you to respond, why keep him waiting? In and of yourself, you cannot save yourself. 
For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and the wages of that sin is death. But for God so loved the world that he gave his one only son, that whosoever believeth on him would not perish, but have everlasting life. You cannot save yourself. You don't have what it takes. That's why Jesus came and did for you what you cannot do so that you might be saved. Turn to him as your savior today and trust him. Put your faith in him, your confidence in him and be saved today. Maybe another time, another place you've made that decision, but you've never publicly declared your intent to follow him. This is a wonderful place to do that. As we have come together as Christ's disciples, let us celebrate that activity in your life today while you come and declare your intent to follow him before people who will celebrate that activity today. There's not a safer place to do that than in this place today. Or maybe you're a disciple, baptized, born-again believer, and you're not waiting well. What has he spoken into your life today in regard to a decision that you need to make? He's waiting. He's revealed himself to you. Will you recognize him and respond appropriately? In this invitation time, this is our opportunity to do so today. God, I pray that as we stand and sing, we'd be responsive to your revelation in our lives when we ask it in Jesus' name. song.